worship this morning. Well, if you will, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life that just really opened up your eyes to the brevity of this life? Well, I can think to, back to something that happened just a few months ago in my life. We were, um, my family and I were visiting Nashville, and my father grew up about an hour east of Nashville in East Tennessee. He uh, was an only child. His father passed away when he was only um, 17 years old. My dad was only 17 years old. His, his dad died in a car wreck. So it was basically just my dad and his mother in a little house on um, a tiny little farm in a tiny little town on a road that nobody knew about called Temperance Holler, Tennessee. And I hadn't been back there since um, before my dad had passed away. He passed away when I was 16. Uh, So this was like 1999. My grandmother passed away just a couple years later. So I had not had any reason to go back and visit this particular place. But we were down in the area uh, with some time to spare. And so I thought to myself, why don't we go and show our kids some of their heritage? So we made the hour drive east of Nashville. And of course, little Temperance Holler, Tennessee was not even on Google Maps. And so I knew the general location. And so we made it there via technology. And then I had to rely on this old brain to actually remember where this house was. And amazingly, uh, by God's grace, I was able to remember, hey, I think we need to turn here. I recognize that thing. And then I think this is the road. So we turn down the road and we start to drive. There's a little creek on the left. There's a few small houses with a little bit of land on the right. And then I see the old barn that uh, I played in growing up. And I said, that's, that's the one right there. And so you can kind of see the barn from the road. There's a little bit of a hill. You can see the barn, but you can't really see the house from the road. So we drive up the windy little path towards the barn, and then we drive up the path to the house. And come to find out, the house has been destroyed. It's been bulldozed by whoever owns that land. And as I was standing there, there were still some things that I recognized, just like an old, old parts of our old wood stove that I remember my grandmother waking up all hours of the night to put more wood in the stove to keep the heat going in the house. She didn't even have a driver's license, so she depended totally on her neighbors to drive her to the grocery store. She put her own wood in the stove. So there were a few reminders there that, um, that this was a significant place for my family. But then at the same time, it made me realize, wow, this life is just a vapor. Virtually everything that that family had and knew was now gone, including all the members of the family that lived there. And because my dad was an only child, I was his only biological child. I had a half-brother, my mom's child, but no more for my dad. I was really the only thing left as far as any kind of lineage from that family who lived on that little farm for decades and decades, and it's now gone. 
So this was kind of a sad moment for me. But it was also a reminder that life is so much more than just this short little time that we have to gather possessions or to maybe buy a little land. As meaningful as those things can be, God uses them all to point us towards eternity. And he's preparing us for our heavenly dwelling where moth cannot destroy, where thief cannot rob, where he will present us with the kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so as we read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I want us to see a couple primary things. First of all, we're called to Christian maturity for the glory of God and for the good of our church. So Paul's going to call us to Christian maturity. I want to think through that for a little while. And then we're also called to live united together, both now and forevermore. As I think about that illustration, ultimately, I'm reminded that the only extended family I have left is my local church. And it's so much more meaningful. We have so much more in common with brothers and sisters in Christ than we do with blood relatives who aren't in Christ. It's incredible the kind of unity that we have. And then, as I said, life is so brief. And what we do for eternity really matters. So let's think through that as we explore this passage this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read a section and then I want to remark on a few things from each section here. Let's start in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So in this first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 here in our passage, Paul is exhorting the Christians in the church at Corinth, which he helped plant, that they are called not just to remain babies in the faith, but they're called to grow in spiritual maturity. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that the church at Corinth, especially in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians had some major issues. Some major issues. And these sinful issues that were coming out were a direct result of their failure to grow in spiritual maturity in Christ. Well, what exactly does it mean for us to grow in spiritual maturity? What does it look like for us not to remain infants in Christ, but to go on to maturity eating the meat of God's word? Well, God calls us to grow in spiritual maturity through a gradual transformation of every part of our being. He calls us to grow in Christ-likeness in our intellect, in our will, And in our affections. So what does it look like to grow in Christ in your intellect? Well, that means that you are faithfully reading the scriptures. And you're seeking to understand them better. Because you want to know and understand Christ himself better. And he's revealed himself here. Your affections for Christ ought to be ever growing. From the time that you're converted. Where you had affections for sin 
and the world, there should be an ever-increasing process in which those things that once allured you no longer hold sway over you. But now you love the Lord Jesus and you grow ever more to love what he loves. And then your will. What do you desire to do with your life? Immature Christians, as Paul's going to say, live in a worldly way and desire the things of the world. But mature, spiritually mature Christians in Christ, they desire the things that God desires for them. You see, God shapes our hearts throughout our Christian walk to desire what he desires. I mean, think about it. Have you ever thought about why Christians would want to go to the mission field? I work with a missions organization called Reaching and Teaching, and we just recently helped a church to send out uh, a family who had been pastoring in in a church in, in rural Kentucky for nearly 20 years. They moved to Niger in western Africa, and not two weeks after they moved, there was a coup, a military coup against the government in which they had to be evacuated. They sent out a letter to their supporters how they could be praying for them, and they ended the letter by saying, please pray that we can get back into the country as soon as possible. That's crazy. That's crazy. The world looks at that and says, what? Why in the world would they want to do that? Well, it's because the Lord has shaped their hearts to desire what he desires. And you know what he desires? The nations for his glory. Can you see the change in your affections? since the time you were saved until now? Can you see the change in your understanding of the scriptures? Can you see the change in what you desire? Well, where and how does this transformation actually take place? Well, primarily, your Christian growth doesn't happen all at once in some emotional moment. But rather, it's the slow and steady process of the ordinary means of grace. You see, when you come to church and you sing together and you hear the word and you pray together, it's not like one big buffet meal that you're going to remember forever because of just how amazing it was. And that one big buffet meal is going to keep you satiated for the next 20 years. It doesn't work like that, does it? No, we need to eat mostly unmemorable, there goes my sick voice, mostly unmemorable meals. Can you remember what you ate for breakfast last Wednesday? We need to eat mostly unmemorable meals from the food of God's word that keeps us healthy and growing day after day and week after week until we see Jesus in glory. He uses the ordinary means of God's grace, primarily in the local church. The preaching of God's word, the singing of God's word, the praying of God's word, fellowshipping over God's word together outside of Sunday mornings where we edify and encourage one another. This is the the where and the how. I was thinking about Isaac's sermon last week, which didn't he do an incredible job? I'm just so blessed by so many um, of, of our brothers and, and sisters here who God has given such great gifts to. But he was talking about how he wished that he had, um, 
he, he was hoping as a New Year's resolution that he could come up in the pulpit one day and just be so big that he looks like a different person, right? Y'all remember that? Well, I had the chance to go and, and lift some weights with, with Dallas the other day. And I basically told him, like, teach me to lift weights like the military teaches you to lift weights, you know? And during this time, um, we're not, we're, we're, we're talking, but we're not just talking about, you know, trivial things. We're talking about the Lord. We're encouraging one another. We're talking theology. And we're not primarily doing that by sitting around and doing a, a book study, right? We're living everyday life together. That's what fellowship in the word looks like. And by the way, Isaac, if the next time you preach, you want to come up here and look like a different person, then go work out with Dallas. <laughs> He'll do it to you. But that's what it looks like, right? Lean into life with one another so that Christ can transform your intellect as you challenge and sharpen one another. So that he can transform your desires, your affections, so that you become more and more like him. This leads to the unity that we're going to talk about in just a moment. I mean, just think about what we've done this morning so far. When you come to church, you're not just an individual doing an individual private devotional type thing. You're, you're coming together as one body, united in Christ under one gospel, in order to glorify God together as one people. So when we sing together, we're singing the same words, we're confessing these things to one another, and it's uniting us more in our spirit towards one another. We're sitting under the preaching of the word, we're hearing the same thing that's transforming us together, and it's uniting us closer to one another. Now, when this isn't happening, Paul says that we're merely acting worldly. He says that when we allow jealousy and strife among us, then we're behaving only in a human way. So what would it look like for us to be worldly as opposed to growing in Christian maturity? Well, the world often doesn't grow at all in maturity, but instead they advocate for an extended adolescence. You know, adolescence is a new term that really didn't exist until about 100 years ago. You guys know what adolescence is. It's usually that time between being a child and being an adult, right? And up until about 100 years ago, there was really no such thing as adolescence because you were a child and then you were an adult who served on the farm with your family, went into the family business, and you were always being prepared for adulthood. But now we've gone from an adolescence that looks like maybe 12 to 18 to all of a sudden now we have this extended adolescence that goes from like 12 to 35 to where all of a sudden nobody is taking responsibility or growing into maturity. Don't be worldly, but instead grow in Christian maturity. Men, embrace responsibility. Young men, you're becoming that kind of man now that the Lord has for you. Embrace it. Grow in it. Don't be like the world. What else does worldly, a worldly lack of maturity look like? Well, it's a rejection of the family. Doesn't it make sense that if Satan wanted to divide us, if Satan wanted to hurt us, then he would divide the most essential institution that God has created, which is marriage and the family. And is that not exactly what he's doing? And the world just buys into it hook, line, and sinker. They reject 
the natural nuclear family. They reject the growth and goodness that God has instituted in the family. Don't reject that. Lean into it. Lean into the glories of marriage. Lean into the blessing of children. What about jealousy and strife like Paul mentions? Man, do we see that today in our world. Whether it's intentional or not, there is a, an, an idea of Marxism that has come to dominate academia, our, our institutions of higher learning, that basically says that you're, you deserve what everybody else has. In fact, Winston Churchill once said that this kind of Marxism is the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. That's what our world breeds. It breeds jealousy. It breeds strife. And that breeds disunity. Let's not be worldly. There are some Christians in here who make a lot of money. There's some Christians in here that don't make very much money. Praise the Lord for what he's given us and let's unite together for something bigger. Worldly, nominal Christians place the church in a compartment in their lives. So they have work, they have family, they have church, and those things don't really overlap. So what I believe about Christ, what I believe about the church, it doesn't really affect me in other areas of my life. That's what a worldly, nominal, professing Christian does. In fact, we've got a governor who's running for re-election, who is a disciple or a deacon in his church, And during the COVID shutdowns, he showed us what he thinks is essential because he kept the abortion clinics open and shut down the church. Well, where are his priorities? Where are his priorities? As Christians, we see the church as the most essential thing in the world. What could be more essential than gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ? In fact... It may not be as drastic as being a governor who has the chance to uh, make big decisions like that, but you're making decisions all the time and you're modeling for your children how important you see the church and spiritual maturation. So are you allowing your children to play travel ball on Sundays? Well, you're telling them that something's more important than gathering with God's people. Are you saying, well, we'll go to the lake a couple times um, a month on Sundays. We'll go to church a couple times. Because they're, what are your children seeing there? Well, they're equally important. No, you should be so devoted to Christ and his church. Because you know what? Jesus loves more than anything else in all creation, his church. You should be so devoted. You should have such, your hearts to be so shaped to love what Jesus loves. That all of a sudden, gathering with the saints and going to church should be your excuse for missing everything else. Instead of the other way around. Well, I've got this excuse for missing church. No, church is your excuse for missing everything else. You're modeling that for those around you. Your presence here is such a blessing to everybody else, whether you realize it or not. It matters that you're here. I am so thankful for the way that the Lord has kept our church growing in Christ-likeness. And the reason that's happening is, as I'll talk about in a moment, is because the truth is being preached from the pulpit. It's being sung during the songs. It's being prayed. But it's also because you guys are pouring into one another. 
You guys are, are, are edifying one another. You guys are not being jealous and saying, oh man, that guy can really preach. I can't preach, so I'm not going to be friends with him. No. You're putting those silly things aside in order to unite together for Christ-likeness. So I would just encourage you, continue to do that. Continue to remember the parable of the talents. God has given each of you a gifting. God has given each of you a talent. And he expects you to use it. So find others that you can pour into. Find others that can pour into you and spend time with them. Live in fellowship with your brothers and sisters here so that you don't find yourself on judgment day like that wicked servant who buried his gifts in the ground and therefore was cast into the outer darkness. So Paul's calling us to spiritual maturity. He's also calling us to Christian unity. He goes on to say in verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, united. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So there's a call to unity here, right? Not division. There's going to be division in this world, right? We read a passage where immediately um, after Jesus talks about Unity, he talks about the fact that he didn't come to give peace to the world, he came to bring a sword. And the kind of unity that we enjoy as believers, by necessity, separates us from the world, right? It's inevitable. It's part of the deal. But the, the, the unity within the church is something so important that we are called to burn with zeal for Christian unity within our churches. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, with humility and gentleness... Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're called to pursue unity. And we could look at multiple passages where even Christ himself is praying that we would be one with one another. Well, that's what unity is. In the Greek, unity is, is literally being one in mind and purpose. Being one in mind and purpose. John Calvin once said, the unity of God's servants is so esteemed by him that he will not have his glory sounded forth amidst discords and contentions. You want to make sure that your preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word, comes back empty? Let's break the unity. Let's have discord. Let's have division. We've got to fight for unity. One of the examples that Paul gives here of something that can disrupt our unity is dividing into factions based on Christian teachers. I mean, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's exactly what he's emphasizing here. That the unity of, of, of the church is so important that we've got to make sure that even in our striving for maturity in Christ... We don't divide because I like one person more and you like one person more. No, no, no. We unite together. 
We emphasize what ought to be emphasized. We give grace in what can be given grace to. And then we pursue the purpose together. It's so funny. When I, when I first read this, I couldn't help but, but uh, think about um, uh, last time I preached. Willow, basically, my oldest daughter, she said to me, you're a pretty good preacher, but you're no Dr. Warwick. Duh. <laughs> Duh. I know that. I don't need to be told that. But can you imagine if something that silly, if we allowed something like jealousy to fester and that created disunity in the church over something so silly? And yet that's exactly what's happening in the church at Corinth. I mean, can you imagine somebody seeing Isaac preach last uh, last week and saying, that dude's in finance? And he preaches like that? What hope do I have? Just sit back. That's silly, right? We glorify the Lord for our giftings. We glorify and encourage, uh, we, we encourage one another in order that we may be united. You know, in fact, I, I've had seminary students come through here who's, who have told me, that they didn't want to attend Bullet Lick because of some of the books we read and some of the pastors that we listen to. It's just like, seriously? Like, I just couldn't help but think of this passage. Like, why in the world would we allow such silliness to divide us? And yet, Satan knows. And Paul is illustrating that that's exactly what happens so often. You know, I think that something like this is even more of a danger in our in our modern age with the technology that we have, right? I mean, you can listen to literally the best speakers in the world. You can listen to the most famous pastors on podcast day after day, and you can start to think, well, my local church pastor doesn't sound like that. He's not as good a speaker as this guy, or he doesn't exposit or divide the word like this guy. So what do I need the church for? I'll just stay home, watch online. No. Charles Spurgeon once said that we ought to visit many great books, but live in the Bible. Well, I would venture to change that just a little bit. Visit many great preachers, but live in your local church. Love your local church. Because these are the people that know you. These are the people that love you. These are the people that cry with you when your father dies. These are the people who rebuke you when you're in sin. These are the people that encourage you when you need encouraging. I just feel like it's such a a silly thing to compare ourselves to others in such a way that all of a sudden we're thinking like, I want to be more like that guy than I want to be like that faithful brother I know in my local church. And not only that, but it's foolish. How many how many of the great evangelical pastors and conference speakers have you seen fall over the last 15 to 20 years? Fall into sexual immorality. Fall into pridefulness to the point that they can't even pastor their church anymore. It happens all the time. Because we're not made for that kind of glory. You know, you have a Michael Jackson or an Elvis Presley who end up taking their lives even though they have everything the world says you would want. Fame, money, glory. Why? Because we're not made to receive glory, made to reflect it back to God. And besides, like, I just think about 
wanting to be like those guys or wanting to follow those guys or arguing like, oh, I follow John MacArthur. I follow John Piper. It's like nobody cares. It's like I'm the coolest kid in the debate club. So? Nobody cares about that kind of stuff. It's silly, right? It's foolish. So may we lean into our local church. May we love the people that God has given us to love. And here's the truth. It's our shepherd. It's our elders who feed us. It's our shepherd and our elders who labor over the word to give it to us week after week after week. Kevin DeYoung said, few churches will grow deep in the word if they only swim in the shallow end on Sunday mornings. Well, I'll tell you what, we don't swim in a shallow end around here. What a blessing. And, you know, I said all that kind of stuff about, like, podcast hosts listening to the best speakers in the world, you know, and comparing them to our local pastor. I'm not sure there's a better preacher than the preacher that we have. You know? Like, what a blessing. Why would we look elsewhere? Why would we not have unity right here? And I'm just so thankful that Dr. Oreck, even just a couple weeks ago, prayed, Lord, send us the people that you have for this congregation and keep away the people that would break our unity. May we pray that for ourselves as well. Send us the people you have for us, but keep away the people that would disrupt our unity. So let's not be worldly when it comes to unity. Let's not be individualistic like so many people in our culture. They treat their homes like a fortress and they don't allow anybody in. No, let's be hospitable. Let's build unity in the way that we live life together. The world is desperate for community. They're desperate for some kind of unity. And yet, what do we see? Even as they pursue unity, it only breeds dissension and division. I mean, just think about it. We've basically got two different flags flying over our country right now, even at the White House. You've got the American flag, and you've got the gay pride flag. And it really represents two different unions. And yet, the union that's represented by the gay pride flag is a union that's not built on truth or reality. True unity must be built on the truth. And when you lack truth, you lack unity. So may we never sacrifice the truth in pursuit of a false unity. And we see worldly examples of that. For example, within the gay community, we see all of a sudden that transgender activists are saying things that the rest of the community doesn't like. For example, we've got trans activists who are saying, well, we should be able to compete in sports according to the gender of our choice. And then you have famous uh, lesbian heroes of the past decade. Isn't it quick, crazy how quickly it turns? Somebody like Martina Navratilova, a famous tennis player who was hailed as this feminist and lesbian icon about 10 years ago who now is being shouted down by her same community because she doesn't want men playing women's sports. Why is this happening? Why is there a movement known as LGB drop the T? It's because their union is not built on truth. It's not built on reality. May we build our unity on the truth and on Christ. And may we never... Let Satan divide us with jealousy and strife, but let's invest in one another 
for the good of the church, both now and for the future. And then briefly, I just want to see this last point. We're called to live united together, not just now, but forever. (laughs) Paul tells us here in the last section of of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that I want to read. In verse 10, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So just like the passages we read before, there's going to be a day in which the Lord Jesus himself is going to judge us based on the lives we've lived. And what we do with these lives really matters. Why does being united and growing in Christian maturity actually matter? Because we're going to be living with each other for a really, 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 really long time. So we need to get ready. We need to grow to love one another. We need to grow to learn how to encourage one another in Christ's likeness. Because that's the reason Paul is rooting everything he's called us to in the first part of this passage in the transcendent, in the eternal. He calls us to grow in maturity, to grow in unity, because we're going to be united with brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of Christ forever. So let's practice that kind of unity and maturity now. You're being prepared for something bigger. For something better. For something eternal. And that's why when you have a moment that reminds you of the brevity of life like I had driving past my grandmother's house that's now nothing. It should be a reminder that our lives are like the grass that withers and the flower that fades. But the word of God endures forever. So let's live that way. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Man, I hope you have those kind of affections. I hope you just long for Christ, that it just hurts. And it's a reminder, I don't find satisfaction here because I wasn't made for this world. This is not my home. I was made for eternity. How do these rewards work? I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. The Bible tells us clearly that there's going to be different manifestations of both wrath and glory for the sheep and the goats. But I don't know exactly how that's going to look like. Jonathan Edwards, who's America's greatest theologian, he writes a lot on rewards because the Bible talks about rewards a lot, that it's a proper motivation. And he says that it's like if you were to consider 
uh, the Titanic as, compo- as opposed to like a little dinghy boat? Well, somebody like Dr. Oric, for example, who has lived just decades and decades of Christian faithfulness, just focused on the Word of God, or those missionaries in Niger who are just focused on living for God's glory every minute of every day, they're going to have a capacity for glory, for enjoying Christ like the Titanic. But, as Paul talks about here, somebody who perhaps has a deathbed conversion, they will be saved. He says it right here in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 15. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this person, or the thief on the cross, they may have a lesser capacity for joy, like that little tugboat, but it's going to be completely full. And they're not going to look on the Titanic and be jealous. There's not going to be any strife because we're going to be in complete unity. It's beautiful. So live in a way that you're building up your capacity for joy. You're building up your capacity to love the Lord Jesus more. Because we're going to be united to him forever. He's the only reason that we get any of this. It's only because he's the son who deserves all of this. He deserves the kingdom. But he has chosen to save sinners like us and to unite us together with himself so that we receive the inheritance. Wow. So let's live like children of God. Let's live like this life matters for eternity. Next time you go to the beach, pick up just a little grain of sand and put it on the tip of your finger. That represents this short life. All that other sand on the seashore, that's eternity. Are you going to live like this is all that matters? <laughs> or are you going to live like eternity matters? I want to finish with these lyrics that we had um, from a song we sang during family devotionals the other night. And let me encourage you, if you didn't come to our men's um, breakfast, um, next time that we get together, we're going to be encouraging and studying, uh, encouraging you to start, if you haven't started already, family devotionals. We're going to be studying it more. Um, none of us do these works perfectly. But we want to edify one another, encourage each other in all these works of, of godliness. But we, we sang the song, All Glory Be to Christ, and I just thought it was such a great summary of what we've been talking about. It says this, Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall heir his people be. All glory be to Christ. Let me finish with this benediction scripture from 2 Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Jim Bob, come lead us in a concluding hymn.